Hi. The, the Guardian's Gabby Hensliff has written a piece um, on Boris Johnson's suggested reforms of education, particularly higher education. Uh, the levelling up agenda and the attempt to hold on to the so-called red wall seats in the north of England um, is inspiring a range of changes in education. They haven't happened yet, but they've been proposed. And she's not entirely sure what they amount to or whether they'll be carried out. But anyway, she's exploring the question. Uh, she sees this very obviously as part of a, a broader attack on small-l liberal Britain. The, um, the Guardian reader is pretty much possessed of the, of the idea that the people who agree with them on, uh, on politics and, and society and culture are not just in agreement, but are actually right as well, and that you're not only wrong, but you're a knave to suggest otherwise. I think they, they typically think that people in the centre-right are ill-intentioned and disingenuous. Uh, and it's interesting, this article, because she concludes by suggesting that maybe uh, Johnson is serious and ruthless and, and well-motivated and, uh, and prepared to go through with it for, for reasons that, uh, that don't fit easily with a lot of the other things that she thinks about Johnson. So it's an interesting article, because, um, as I say, the, the middle classes, there's a funny thing in Adrian Moe, Sue Townsend's Adrian Moe, when... Uh, when the, the two families effectively swap one adult each and uh, Adrian's father becomes the new romantic attachment for uh, Pandora's mother. And uh, as Pandora's mother plunges the, uh, the, uh, the cafetiere uh, maker um, filter, she plunges it through the glass and he watches uh, rapt. Um, the Mo's father watches. He's always wanted to join the middle classes. And, uh, and Sue Townsend's a, a good observer, um, and she recognises when other people have been good observers. She talks about one of the few things she kept from a thing that her own son had said she kept it in the Adrian Mole diaries. Um, he asked, why don't we go to safari parks like other families? Uh, and, he, and she said he, he said that when he got to that age in adolescence, when, she, when he was beginning to look at his parents from the point of view of the rest of the society. And, uh, and that, that constellation of beliefs about how the world works and how you should live and what it's appropriate to believe and do. Uh, that, that constellation that comprises the, the Guardian um, worldview, um, I think Hensliff regards it as a bit of an offence that somebody as well-educated uh, as Johnson um, would actually dare to question some of the central tenets. So it's an interesting little piece she's written because, as I say, she, she's contemplating this change in education as part of a broader Johnsonian approach to the BBC and the museums and the art galleries. Uh, and culture generally. So, as she says, at the moment the kids are all considering what they should do in higher education, if anything. Uh, it's a pretty fraught time. There's been a year out of education, effectively, for most people. I remember the uh, Glasgow University English, the kids that were tempted up to Glasgow University for, by the offer of a £27,000 four-year Master of Arts degree in a Russell Group University. They came up last year and were instantly locked up in halls of residence That's because of the COVID crisis. Um, so it's been one hell of a year for last year's higher education students. And this year's are therefore faced with a decision which is even more difficult than it normally would be. Because, of course, everyone has to ask themselves whether higher education is worth it. You're giving up possibly four years' wages, although you might not get a job if you don't go. But you're possibly giving up four years' wages. Um, when I was training as an accountant, some of the accountants were still guys that had entered with A-levels and were doing the professional exams rather than losing out on three years' wages. So you're giving up some wages and you're paying a lot of money, certainly in England, in tuition fees, which have to be paid off. So the question uh, is acute as to whether you should, uh, should go or not. And if you do go, whether you should do something and aim at a, a job at the end of it. So classically, accountancy or management or one of the vocational things like dentistry, law, medicine, obviously, these things lead to, to jobs. Whereas if you do something that you like, like English, uh, you might not get much benefit out of it. The, there was evidence that showed that if you look at um, females who did fine arts at university and compared them to similar females who had the same A-levels but didn't do fine arts, it looked as if the fine arts degree was actually lowering their income. <laughs> it was actually making them less employable. That's probably not true. It's probably that the, the, the slice, the cohort, the group that goes to do a fine art degree isn't typical of all the ones who've got the same A-level. So they're probably a self-selected group. But it's at least interesting that a fine art degree doesn't raise your employability very much. 
So the kids are considering what they should do, and uh, Gavin Williamson, the Education Secretary, has maybe made the decision a bit easier by categorising or characterising a lot of degrees as, as completely pointless and dead end and not going to pay back anything like the cost to provide the degree. Um, so the, the suspicion is that he means by that non-STEM, you know, science, technology, engineering and maths degrees. Non-STEM um, are the kind of degrees that he seems to be uh, targeting. The, the country, for example, as I found out as a, as a college lecturer, wants to do psychology. The number of people who want to do psychology and become a, a clinical psychologist is incredible. And uh, it's arguably a little bit out of control. Uh, and I'll talk about that in a moment. But so, so Williamson, as I say, thinks that a lot of degrees don't pay um, much in the way of a return. And the irony, of course, as Hensliff points out, is that because Boris Johnson and his partner, Carrie Simmons, uh, have both got degrees that... Uh, if the changes go ahead, it would be more difficult to undertake. Uh, I think classics and arts are what the two of them have got. So they're talking about halving the subsidies for uh, these kinds of degrees, in large part because the graduates who get them don't earn much money. So it's seen as if they're relatively poor value. Um, they're talking about lowering the fees to £7,500. At the moment, as I say, it's 9000 I think I'm right in saying. And if you go to Glasgow they'll charge you 27 which is what it would cost in England for a three-year degree, and they'll give you a four-year uh, Glasgow MA, which a lot of people find quite attractive. There'll be additional funding for the STEM degrees, which the government's keen to encourage. There's good evidence that a society's economic growth is quite closely correlated with uh, the degree of maths education. Maths teaches you to think logically, and there's quite a good little correlation between achievement in maths and, and better economic growth. Partly that might be tr because of countries that are reasonably well organised but still poor and therefore the ones that are capable of growing quickly are able to organise maths teaching but not other things. So it might be it's a relatively cheap subject to deliver and places where it is delivered are places that are functional but poor. So they're likely to see quicker growth anyway. So again that might not be cause and effect. But the danger is that elite universities might be the only place you can do an arts degree uh, like history or philosophy or whatever. The, I mean, the degree of sort of ignorance about how um, the world is carved up and how things work uh, means that people like me, um, when we were 18, coming from my background, wouldn't know that when people talk about the humanities and the arts, what they're talking about, you know, people wouldn't know. Um, if you go to university to do a Master of Arts degree, a lot of people think you'd be wearing a smock and painting. So the, uh, the, the, the group of people that go to university have got a whole range of sort of tacit knowledge and and, and similar um, things that they don't realise other people haven't got. So the and, and and for example, the people like me know that some of the elite universities have got big endowment funds, particularly in America, but also in the UK, and therefore they can afford to cross subsidise some of the degrees. When all of the degrees were charging nine thousand, the cross subsidy worked from the arts to things that were expensive like engineering. Um, but um, if you cut all the funding to seven and a half. Uh, and and things like an Oxbridge classical philosophy degree where you're writing three essays a week and having them marked closely and spending time with your tutor, that'll only be available in places like Oxford Colleges that have got endowments. So the um, the change could could be quite profound. Um, and uh, as Hensliff suggests, that it involves quite a, a casual or at least a, um, significant disregard of what the student would like to study. So when I went to university, I couldn't have studied anything other than the arts and social sciences. I had absolutely no aptitude or interest in, in the sciences. I was completely unbiddable. Uh, I even managed to fail uh, O-level chemistry. Um, so that somebody like me, with all of my issues at the age of 18, 17, 18, would simply not have been able to go to university if I'd been made to do something um, other than what I did. I might have squeezed through an economics or an chemistry degree, but that would have been it. If, if I'd been made to do something straightforwardly, scientific or mathematical, I wouldn't have managed it. I wouldn't have lasted six months. And indeed, a lot of my pals who tried it didn't last six months. So Hensler says, well, we appear not to be interested in what the students actually want to do, nor what the society values other than what can be monetized. So the classic old saw in progressive education used to be, we're not just concerned with what the student um, is going to learn, but the life that they will live. You know, how will they be afterwards? What kind of person will they be? How will they respond to other people? How will they enjoy their life? Kevin McKenna, the left-wing journalist in The Herald, uh, says that, you know, working-class people need to be put in a position where they can enjoy their lives rather than just endure them. 
And one of the things that's central to enjoying your life is having a way of putting together uh, life imaginatively, understanding who you are and what other people are and what an achievement is and what a good life is. And uh, Hensliff suggests that Johnson's agenda um, involves disregarding all that kind of thing. And she also suggests that if, if he gets his own way and we do start producing huge numbers of STEM students, there'll simply be an oversupply of STEM students. And for classic supply and demand reasons, uh, that will have negative consequences. So the, that's, that's part of the agenda. The other part of the agenda seems to be to just reduce absolute numbers. The history of higher education for the last sort of 30 years has been largely uh, increasing in numbers quite sharply. Under the major government, uh, the polytechnics largely became universities. Places like uh, Robert Gordon and Napier, when I was a boy, uh, were well respected despite the fact they weren't universities. One of my pals at, university, uh, at school, uh, Joe Hanna, went to one of the two, uh, if I had to guess, I would say Napier. But he went to one of the two, despite the fact he had really good hires and could have gone to university. But he chose um, the other um, because it was better. So these institutions, these polytechnics, um, Paisley College of Technology, I think it used to be called, became universities in the case of Paisley, the University of West of Scotland. So there was a big change in higher education provision from these universities that offered things like textiles, and with often with a year off, a year released to a company. When I was at York University, there was a kid um, from one of the Liverpool higher education um, institutions who was doing a year's placement uh, with Cadbury's, I think, or, or one of the chocolate companies in New York. So these institutions became uh, universities. And then the second big change, of course, was Tony Blair declaring that 50% of the population could go to university. Why 50% was, wasn't clear? Why not 46 or 38 or 62? Why this magic figure of half? Um, presumably, uh, although it wasn't said, the, there's half the population above average intelligence on a standard psychometric test and half below. So perhaps he thought that the half above um, would be able to benefit. But, uh, but this produced um, real game-changing effects. It meant a massive expansion in the number of people doing uh, university degrees. When I was a kid, when, if you graduated, you got your picture in the local paper because it was so unusual. They still kind of do that, but they're swamped by it because there's so many people graduating. So it's not the, the, the great thing it used to be. One of my pals at university said that when he went home at Christmas after first year at university, um, some of the people around him seemed to imagine he had something to do with the government. You know, because he was going to Glasgow University and doing a history degree, um, that, that conferred such a huge amount of kudos. People thought he had something to do with the government. So maybe what uh, Johnson's trying to do is rein in some of that cost because the costs haven't been covered by the tuition fees. The universities are much more expensive than the tuition fees um, would, would meet. I mean, in other words, it costs more than £9,000 a year to provide most of the courses. Uh, the average university lecturer is actually a senior lecturer. Um, the universities have got something like half the staff costs in non-teaching staff. So the costs of the, of the universities are, are really, really high. Um, and uh, I think it's less true now than it used to be, but the, the total number of class contact hours in universities used to be very low. Um, many years ago, I asked uh, a head of a department how many hours the average lecturer was spending with the students. And he told me that in a year, there was only two lecturers in the department, a department of maybe 25 staff. There was only two who had spent more than 100 hours in contact with the students in the year. And uh, most did much less. Now, new members of staff are having a very different experience. It's so desirable to be a higher education lecturer. Uh, there's an infinite supply or a near infinite supply of young people who are really keen on their subject and are desperate to continue studying. And, uh, and they can be made to work under pretty uh, severe conditions. So I was talking to a couple of university lecturers um, from Glasgow Uni, and uh, they, they had to make themselves available uh, before the lectures and then again afterwards to clarify things. So each lecture, with lecture was actually taking up a lot more time than you'd imagine, because not only have you got to prepare, but they then got to be available before and after. And the whole thing just sounded ludicrous. It sounded as if they'd lost sight of, uh, of what the lecture was for, which was to teach you how to listen. But, uh, so the, the, the universities, as I say, don't actually pay their costs from the, from the tuition fees. And in England, the, uh, the £27,000 and just over that you have to earn to start paying back your tuition fees, something like a third of all fees will never be paid back because the students will never actually make enough money over the course of their life to pay the tuition fees. 
the, the effectively amounts to quite a sharp increase in income tax when you had 27,000. Kids who've been through university in England have got a really painful debt to pay off. Um, and uh, I can't remember the figure, but I think they're paying a 27, 28% income tax rate, something like that, which is pretty steep. But of course, a lot of them won't pay it back. And the government has now been uh, required to account for that. The national accounts, the national accounts are drawn up and uh, there's various ways of doing it. They will joke about an accountant, you know, somebody goes for a job as an accountant and uh, the interviewer says, what's one and one? And they say two. I say, okay, I'll let you know. And the next person comes in and says, what's one and one? And he says, what would you like it to be? And he, of course, gets the job. So how, how you account for uh, student loans? Are they part of the national debt? Um, and if they are part of the national debt, you have to write off the uh, a slice of that and, and consolidate it in the national debt um, as never repaid. In other words, if you know a third of your outstanding student loans are never going to be paid off uh, and you've got 40, 40 billion in student loans, do you have to add 13 billion to the national debt and start paying interest on that? Uh, and accept that you're never going to get it back. So there, there are various ways that you can account for uh, things. And uh, the uh, the accountancy rules now require them to, to look properly, look through the accounts and uh, and see the national debt for what it is, or rather the outstanding student loans for what they are. And that means there's now more of a pressure to try and control the total amount of money being spent. So this is causing a, a, a motive or an incentive to, to reduce the total number of university places. And uh, the government, therefore, has got a, a, a very obvious reason uh, why they would want fewer students doing the kind of courses that don't lead to high earnings and cause high write-offs. And they know that those are arts courses and courses offered to kids with bad A-levels. If you've got bad A-levels and you go to some former polytechnic and you got in and, you know, two Ds or two Es, you're probably not going to have much of an uplift in your earnings. A lot of the accountancy firms used to look not at your degree, but at your A-levels, because it was a much better predictor of how well you'd be able to pass the professional exams. That's quite a bad state of affairs, you know? It should not be the case that they can look past your a your uh, degree to your A-levels. I had a girl in an advanced higher and modern studies class who already had an upper second class honours degree in law from Strathclyde University. And the reason why she was doing uh, advanced higher and modern studies was because she couldn't get an interview, couldn't get a job without hires. So, because she'd went through some kind of access course. So it's, it's, a, it's a pretty bad state of affairs when the university degrees aren't relied on by the employers, but that's been happening for a long time. So the government, like the employers, knows that kids who do art subjects or who've got bad A-levels will typically not do that well at university. Um, and therefore there's, there's an incentive to have downward pressure on, on those courses. Now, that should mean um, that certainly there's money available to do what the government has said it's going to do, which is to put money into further education and vocational courses rather than simply into higher education. The, the tidal wave of money that finances sociologists to talk about bourgeois um, or philosophers to talk about environmental ethics is going to, the claim is, be diverted into further education colleges where engineers can tell kids who've not got great A-levels exactly how to do circuit testing in HNC courses. And uh, I taught a lot of students communications um, who were on apprenticeships. And I was quite shocked to discover the kind of money they were going to make at the end of their apprenticeship. People uh, doing apprenticeships with British Aerospace and Diageo. If you can get some good hires and things like physics and maths and get an apprenticeship in one of these uh, big companies, uh, you're going to make a lot more money than a lot of graduates. And you're going to make it a lot earlier. Uh, I was I was taken aback when I found out exactly what you got as a as a production engineer at Diageo uh, supervising whatever it was Johnny Walker uh, whiskey. So the, that's the suggestion, and it's part of the promise to the the, the towns like Hartlepool and, and the, the Red Wall uh, places that voted Tory. One of the things that was said was you'll be able to access education near your home. So all of the money that was previously spent financing uh, pretty marginal degrees. In, uh, in towns that then go on to vote for uh, Liberal Democrats. I'm thinking of Sheffield. I think, I think I'm right in saying Nick Clegg held his seat in Sheffield Hallam after the uh, 2015 wipeout. And that's because these towns with uh, new universities like Sheffield Hallam, um, these, these towns are strongly uh, progressive and, and left-leaning. And the, the money is going to go out of those places into places that are much more now Tory and socially conservative. 
uh, the, as Matthew Goodwin says, the Tory party is leaning left on the economy and right on social issues. So part of that is going to be paying for the further education colleges uh, to expand their provision. And uh, this could be a big thing. As Hinsliff says, the big divide in society isn't between social classes anymore, it's between the educational levels. Because what you've got is a group of people who are university educated, who've went through sociology, political theory, philosophy, similar degrees, history, media studies, gender studies, whatever. They've went through these kind of courses and they've got jobs um, which might or might not be well paid, often in the public sector and fairly well paid. Uh, and then you've got other people who might be making a decent living, but they never went through university. So you've got all the, the guys who did trades and similar things. And that's the divide. It's not an income divide. Um, the people who are voting for the Tory party in the north of England might be making as much money as the kids in the gig economy who've got the sociology degrees. Uh, but they're very different people with different outlooks. So the uh, the key divide, as I say, is, is killing the Labour Party because it means that their, their only solid voting bloc is uh, is public sector workers and uh, and kids with, with degrees in, in progressive cities. London, of course, is, is hugely Labour. Just re-elected Sadiq Khan. Uh, but places like that aren't enough to win general elections. So the uh, the high school students are voting Tory, uh, and the and the university graduates are voting Labour or Liberal or something else, uh, or SNP in Scotland, and it's killing the Labour Party. And uh, it might be that uh, Johnson is uh, at a, a he's a lucky general, uh, and it's a propitious time, because doing a lot for these left behind towns might now be not only a good thing economically, but it might be a good thing electorally and socially as well, because it might be that he's going to consolidate the Tory party as the party of Middle England uh, by uh, by helping the uh, uh, the kids uh, in these left-behind cities and coastal, coastal towns as well are often terrible. Uh, the places like whatever, Grimsby are just awful um, or Hastings down in the south. So helping these kind of places might be part of the agenda. So as Hensliff says, if you're if you're on the left, she doesn't say she's on the left, but if, if you're on the left, you look at this agenda and you see it as part of a broader um, proposal because the government is obviously unhappy with the BBC and there's talk of decriminalising uh, non-payment of licences or of uh, making the BBC um, reliant on advertising or subscription. So there's talk about fundamental change. Today, um, the story of uh, Martin Bashir and the interview with Princess Diana and uh, the, uh, the, the fabrication of documents to get her to speak and, and Prince William's response yesterday um, all of that is dominating news today, um, and uh, the uh, uh, former head of, I'm just trying to think who it was, somebody was interviewed in Radio 4 this morning, um, Grade, I think it was, I think it was Michael Grade, um, he was interviewed this morning on Radio 4 talking about how there's very little accountability in the BBC because the people who are tasked to hold them to account don't really understand the details of how journalism works. So there's an agenda against um, some of the things that the left regard as their uh, natural bailiwick. Uh, for example, the universities, the museums, um, education and, and culture more widely. So this change in, in education funding might be part of that broad agenda. It might look as, as if it's all of a piece. And it might be that Johnson is more prepared to carry through in this than a lot of people think that he's normally liable to carry through. A lot of people see him as a dilettante as a little bit lazy, um, as someone who's quick to reverse his position if it doesn't suit him. Um, but this might not be the case. It might be that he's serious about levelling up and he's serious about the kind of changes he's now talking about. So the middle class folk who are assuming that their kids are still going to have a place at university to study uh, philosophy might be disappointed because it might be that he's not actually selling a lie to the, the red wall and he's going to allow the system to rumble on. It might be that he's deadly serious and that Gavin Williamson is exactly the kind of person that a Guardian reader would call a dangerous Philistine who's actually prepared to do it. Um, so the, uh, it, might, it might be that the, the, the teachers and lecturers in the, in the new universities are going to be most threatened by a downturn in funding. Uh, they might be, and, and, and are classically Guardian readers, they might be looking at a very difficult period in front of them. So if Johnson, as Hensliff says, is prepared to, to put in jeopardy the UK for the sake of Brexit or British farmers for the sake of a, a trade deal with Australia, and that was another big news story this morning, and the, uh, the suggestion from Cabinet Government yesterday was that the Trade Secretary was happier than the Environmental Secretary, I think they said, when they left the Cabinet meeting, and Rishi Sunak was forced to deny suggestions that there was going to be Cabinet resignations. 
So the, uh, the, the suggestion is that Johnson is um, mo perhaps more ruthless than you'd think. And uh, if he's prepared to do um, things that might be hazardous with regard to the union and uh, with regard to the farming industry, because, of course, the shires, the shires traditionally are, are Tory voting. If, if he's prepared to do that, he might be prepared to do something to really upset a lot of people in education, most of whom don't vote Conservative and have got complete contempt for him anyway. It, just as an aside, it might be, um, in actual fact, that uh, Johnson, as the as the, the intellectual snob, maybe the kid from Eton and Oxford, it might be that he sees that the people who are going to be most affected by this change are the people who are teaching in the universities that he doesn't have any time for anyway. Oxford's still going to offer philosophy and classics. It's just the University of Huddersfield is not going to be able to offer sociology and gender studies. Uh, and it might be that Johnson's already arrived at that conclusion and is not just prepared to throw it, but in actual fact likes it. Hinsliff's argument that uh, what you've got is a, a broad attack on uh, civil society, if you like, or certainly what she considers as the best bit of civil society, this attack on the BBC and on the museums and art galleries and uh, the education system. She obviously sees this as part of a, a, a broad um, approach to the, the Guardian readers of, of uh, the UK, people like herself and uh, the, the civilising forces, the doubtless um, remain voting, uh, Liberal Democrats supporting or Labour supporting civilising forces. The, the, the mark of the, the progressive left is they don't actually see that somebody else's views might be legitimate and sincere and, uh, and well-intentioned. And in particular, it's a bit galling when you consider the, the history of the last 30 or 40 years on both sides of the Atlantic and also in Europe, uh, in particular in France, obviously. When you look at what has happened in education, the shift from teaching people how to think, or certainly my view, teaching people how to think, towards teaching them what to think um, and uh, the growth in, in subjects that seem parasitic on older subjects and don't seem to have a rationale. So for example, something like area studies um, doesn't seem to be conceptually distinct from geography and sociology, which already exist. Um, it doesn't seem as if environmental ethics is well defined enough and has a significant literature such that it should be a separate thing from political theory or philosophy. And uh, and one of the concerns is that the universities have received all this public money, but they've been left fairly unregulated. And what has happened is that, um, and people don't understand the dynamics, if you can get a, a few journals established and start publishing articles from uh, people at the edges of a discipline, they can rapidly establish themselves as being a, a separate thing, and they can start to acquire students. And you end up in a situation where you're using public money to finance something like, for example, environmental ethics in the 1990s that came out of nowhere. You're using public money without it being obvious that there's really the hundreds of years of steady discipline and, uh, and thought that establishes something solid. I mean, you can argue whether sociology is, uh, is sufficiently rigorous. You can argue whether, you know, Durkheim and, and Marx provide enough of a literature uh, and whether there's been enough sociology teaching for long enough and whether it's uh, been a, a subject that's been studied with others so that the, the habits and customs of the other subjects get um, introduced into sociology so that sociology is as rigorous as other things. You can argue whether sociology has got its place in the academy in the way that history and, uh, and philosophy have. But the one thing that seems to me fairly clear is that there's other things which really don't have a place in the academy um, and they've been allowed to carve out a niche because nobody cares over much. And as I say, the, the left has made this long march through the institutions that uh, I think Gramsci recommends, and they've taken over large parts of the media and, and civil society, and they've made unsayable and unthinkable various things. So the, um, and, and, and it gets to the, the sort of, the, not the silly stage, but it gets to a grating stage. Um, if, if it's not silly, it's, it's annoying that, for example, uh, and I'm reading Ed West's book on uh, conservatism, The Last Tory at the minute, it gets, it's annoying that people in higher education don't feel they can actually be um, on the, on the centre-right. They don't feel they can support, for example, Brexit. That chap, I think, Toombs is his name at Cambridge, the historian, 
he supported leave um, and uh, the sneering condescension of the, the Remain voter uh, and, the, and the casual disregard for everybody um, who voted leave on the assumption that they must not have good arguments for their, uh, for their position. That's quite grating. And uh, the, uh, the universities, as I say, have become places where the, the, the progressive left vote is minted, where it's, it's, uh, young people are, are created who believe things that are far more questionable than they think. Uh, we know that uh, the, the supposed better understanding of the higher educational standards of leave voters are entirely an artefact of age. So we know that you know when people say that leave voters of remain voters, we know that remain voters are more educated, but that's just because they're younger and there's been this big expansion in higher education. So the, uh, the Hensleth thinks that the the right is now having a pop at central parts of, of of British society, but what's obvious to someone like me in the centre right is that this is, if not a response, it's coming after the the left have done a pretty good job at taking over large parts of. Of civil society and and uh, the the state and the, and the other the broader quasi state the universities are autonomous but they're almost entirely state funded, um, and uh, the 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 Guardian agenda the Guardian reader view of how the world works, about for example the malleability of human nature, or the inheritability of intelligence or the worth of education for people who've got no real taste for books, um, the, all of that is is built into the bricks um, and. Uh, the, uh, the right response, the Boris Johnson response, if it is a response, doesn't seem to me to be obviously illegitimate in the way um, that the first move was legitimate. It seems to me that it's, it's, it's equally wrong. The universities are supposed to be places for the free exchange of ideas and where people are learning deep skills. Um, they're, they're acquiring changes in affect that can only be acquired probably by a minority in most societies. The, the, the Martin Amos characterised... Um, in one of his novels, um, he talks about what protects America, what protects Americans from America, and he said the average American hasn't spent three years in the Oxford College with a copy of Paradise Lost in their lap, and uh, and the number of people in any society who are going to really be interested enough um, and uh, and disciplined enough to benefit from a proper higher education is probably never going to be that high, and the. Uh, the left has managed to persuade the political class in the case of Blair, um, but that isn't the case. And they've managed to engineer a situation where huge numbers of people are going to universities and might or might not be receiving what was once thought central to university education. And uh, the idea that it's automatically illegitimate for the centre-right to take a, a stance towards that and suggest that maybe we need to roll back a bit, uh, it doesn't seem to me to be obviously illegitimate. And it doesn't seem as if the alternative, which is uh, to allow... Uh, Guardian readers like Hensliff to continue um, giving young people degrees and things that is, I think it was Paul Whitehouse who said he's got a degree in area studies and he still doesn't know what it is. So it's not it's not obvious to me that the first takeover of university of the universities was legitimate in a way that Johnson's reforms are, are obviously illegitimate. When it comes to what young people believe about higher education and the kind of decisions they make, it is really, if you've taught in education and if you've, been, if you've been a teacher, it's quite shocking just how little kids understand and what the difference is between uh, the upper middle classes and the rest. So the number of kids who don't really conceptually distinguish between psychology and psychiatry or don't understand that a BA in law, unless it's at Oxford, is not going to be a practising law degree. So we've allowed kids to enter higher education often possessed of really bad ideas um, as to what education is. And in my experience, and it might not be universal or even common, but in my experience, if you try to help them, if you try to give them the kind of understanding that middle-class kids have got, you're often accused of uh, destroying their dreams. So to some degree, uh, what we've allowed is the growth of uh, marginal provision or uh, questionable provision. And uh, what Gordon Brown dismissed in... Uh, the early Blair years as, as being consumer choice in areas where it can't possibly work. As Brown said, uh, the whole idea of, of market discipline in education or health is predicated in the idea that you've got an informed consumer. In order for to have a market in something like you know car repair, it has to be the case the consumer knows something about cars and, and certainly knows whether they've been repaired properly or not. And uh, if you've got a market in health and people don't know anything at all about healthcare, you're not going to get good output because you're going to have... Uh, charlatans misleading people and uh, in the universities or university higher education provision 
what we've got are fairly uninformed consumers who are probably making decisions on the basis of all kinds of uh, bad ideas. Like, for example, we discovered a, a university revolted up the uh, up the student satisfaction tables by putting a, a chocolate machine outside the, the lecture theatre so that when you went into the lecture theatre, you could get a bar of chocolate if you'd missed breakfast. And this caused a dramatic increase in the, uh, in the, the university's standing and the student approval ratings. Or, for example, um, choosing universities based on the uh, international league tables that are driven entirely by uh, research articles published, high-impact journal articles, as it's called. Students are hugely attracted to universities that score high in these international comparisons, despite the fact that that tells you little or nothing about whether you're going to be transformed by the experience of being at the university. Um, I, I taught a student who went to, I'll name it, Edinburgh. Went to Edinburgh and did philosophy, and at the end of the uh, 24 weeks of the first year's teaching, said that he'd learn more at college doing his higher philosophy. Edinburgh is a great university, fantastic reputation, very high standing in international league tables. But whether that actually helps a particular student acquire reading, reading and writing skills is a completely separate thing. So we've had a massive growth in higher education provision without really thinking carefully about whether we should let the institutions uh, determine how that growth takes place and whether the students or the consumers are really informed consumers who are buying something that's going to do them any good. Um, and as I say, the, uh, the, the, the Johnsonian attempt to reform all of that attack by Hensliff, it's not obvious to me that, uh, that Johnson's reforms are, uh, are badly conceived given where we are, because we've got a huge sector which seems to be producing huge numbers of kids um, that, that don't uh, find life particularly easy. We've got uh, quite low productivity in the UK. We've got an, inter an interface between the welfare state and the education system, which means that if you can find any work at all and you want to have kids, it might not matter whether that work is particularly skillful and highly paid. And uh, arguably what we're doing is creating a class of people who would hugely value a 16 hour a week job uh, doing something um, supposedly creative or people-centred, uh, because that would fit in with their degree and fit in with their, uh, their assumptions about how the world works. And of course, from the point of view of the national accounts, if they're not actually producing any output, um, then they become a very, very expensive person to have in the country over the 40 years. So the, the UK has got a productivity puzzle. We've got low productivity uh, and we've got large numbers of graduates. And if you think about it, that shouldn't be the case. A country that's producing large numbers of people who are supposedly highly educated um, should see economic growth. The, the old treasury model that I used to use when I was teaching um, showed you that increased education spend had this uh, effect on, on economic growth and tax revenue. And I wonder whether the model still shows that. When Johnson went to Oxford, um, there wasn't really much of an expectation that, uh, that he would be spending too much time in lectures, which is probably just as well, because it seems he's the kind of character that wasn't that keen to spend time in lectures. But that, that's a flippant thing for me to say. I was at university in York with uh, a kid called Jonathan Griffiths, who became an intellectual law professor at uh, Queen Mary University. And, uh, and Griffiths described the Oxford system in the 1980s as being, you know, essentially all about reading and writing. The, uh, the lectures were almost in irrelevance, and uh, you were expected to write three short essays a week and spend time with your tutor discussing them. So you essentially taught yourself. I heard a law lecturer um, on, Oxford, on Oxford's website he said, this is an unusual course, the BA in jurisprudence, because the students teach the staff. So the, the staff are there to Socratically draw out your understanding. So you you read up on contract, you read up on whatever consideration is. In order for a contract to exist, there has to be consideration. And there's a whole load of case law as to what consideration could be. So you turn up with your paper, or you hand your paper in, and then you turn up and you defend your paper. And they don't tell you what consideration is. They ask you questions. You know, you, you've cited this case which says that consideration can be future-oriented. It can arrive after the, the moment the contract was sealed and you've suggested uh, that that has to be um, in, a, in a particular time frame. What do you think might be true of people who are very old or very young of that time frame? What do you think the courts might have said um, if you haven't got a judgment or a case to hand? Speculate. What do you think the courts might have said about time frames for future consideration? And that tests you. You think on your feet, what could it possibly be? What would the law require? What would a, what would a sane court uphold? 
And uh, as they say, this is a course where the, the students teach the staff, or more accurately, the staff in a Socratic way draw out the inherent capacities of the mind from the students. Now, if you allow the higher education system to be created under the major Blair governments by the the uh, the colleges, the, the polytechnics turning into uh, universities, you're doing something quite different from what happened before that. Um, Philip Larkin, the poet, talked about the university college system. He, he became the librarian at Hull, but before he was librarian at Hull, he'd uh, been a librarian somewhere else in a, in a university college. And he said something in his book, um, his, 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 he wrote a, a non-fiction book, he wrote a novel as well, but he wrote a non-fiction book. And he said, university lecturers who complain about uh, the difficulties of teaching the students should contemplate what it's like to prepare students in a university college for London's external exams without having any access at all to what the exam paper will contain. So what they had uh, was the syllabus, and yet I should teach it and create somebody who would be able to answer any question when they went in, because you wouldn't know um, what was uh, what was going to be assessed. Now, when we allowed the, the polytechnics to become universities, we did to them what was done uh, to the universities later. And I, I remember this happening at Glasgow Uni when I was a PhD student. The universities were asked to lay out exactly what students would know, what the content of the course was, what a, what a proper politics graduate would know, uh, what they would be able to put in order to achieve, uh, as a further education lecturer would say. And uh, we, we allowed the universities, uh, the new universities, to be created without ever thinking that maybe the nature of a university is all about a practice. It's all about a way of going on. It's all about a culture. It takes hundreds of years to establish a good university because there has to be uh, a set of expectations built up in the students uh, and the staff about what you're trying to achieve, as Oxford, for example, has. Oxford has got a reading culture and a writing culture and a tutorial culture which has taken hundreds of years to create. Now, if you turn polytechnics into universities in quick order and you conceive of a university education as being about the content rather than the manner in which the literature is ranged over, um, if, uh, if you do that, you're probably going to have quite a bad uh, system. When I was at Glasgow in the 1980s and 90s, my PhD supervisor said, if Glasgow is about anything, it's about the text. So if, if Glasgow University's Humanities, Social Sciences, um, Politics Department uh, specifically, but the Humanities and Social Sciences more generally, if it's got a culture, if it's got a character, if it's known for anything, it's known about painstaking attention to the text. So what exactly does it say? Painstakingly read, you know, read it closely. Read Isaiah Berlin's Two Concepts of Liberty and read it really closely in the assumption that either he knew precisely what he wanted to say and said it, and it was a complex idea, so it could only be said uh, with, uh, in, a, in a prose that's quite difficult. Or alternatively, he doesn't know what he's saying, so catch him out, point out the inconsistencies, point out what the propositional content is of the things he actually says, and catch him out. So Glasgow's about the text. So if you, if you believe that universities are about culture, the places where a practice is upheld, a way of going on, then turning the, college, the, the polytechnics into universities in quick order and, and doing that through a process of laying out what the courses have to contain and what the students will be able to do uh, in terms of repeating supposed canonical truths, supposed truths about the causes of the First World War, supposed truths about uh, what Dicey says about the British Constitution. If you do that, you're probably going to get quite a bad system. And uh, Johnson, again, um, from, his, from Mount Olympus, where he sits with his classics degree, he probably knows um, the difference between uh, an education and a training. And he probably knows why a training in the classics is not only not the same thing as an education in the classics, it's dangerous. Um, the idea that you could think yourself to be uh, improved by having true things to say about anything is just a real fundamental mistake. Um, the, uh, the, the purpose of reading Plato is to allow the mind to form its own judgment. You read it closely and you work out what you think about uh, about the idea of forms and how the universe might in actual fact be best understood as being the, the pattern that underwrites the particular and therefore the particular is material but the pattern is universal. Now if you, need, you need to read it yourself and think carefully about what you think about that and for someone to tell you that, uh, that Plato thought X, Y or Z isn't actually relevant to anything and for you to be able to repeat it isn't important and isn't going to be actually uh, consistent with the development of other skills. 
Because the irony, of course, is that an education aimed at improving the individual also makes them a more effective worker. It's precisely because you can read and reason and write that you're a valuable employee. But the way that you teach someone to read and reason and write isn't to try and make them a more valuable employee. You try to make them a better person because good people can read and reason and write. So the improvement of the person isn't inconsistent with the improvement of the worker because the worker, qua skilled worker, is a really good person. And as I say, the, the, the education system probably took a wrong turn over the last 30 or 40 years. Uh, and we've, we've ended up in a situation where we're neither training people to do specifics nor educating them to do everything. We're training them in politics and philosophy and sociology, which is completely and utterly pointless unless you're going to get a job generating people like yourself with equally pointless qualifications. Which leads me to my last point. The, the philosopher Hegel said something interesting. Hegel said that a half philosophy leads away from God. So if you are an ordinary person, you take everything at face value and you think things are legitimate because they just are. You know, so they think the property, you think that property rights are legitimate. You think that keeping your hands off other people is obligatory. Um, you think that you should look after your children and you just accept these things. Um, if you are a true philosopher, you believe all those things but with a deeper understanding because you've theorised um, what it is about the law, what it is about um, the, the family that means that things are correctly as they are. So if you're um, David Hume, you work out exactly why magistracy and justice um, are artificial virtues and why we have to rigorously um, do what justice requires even if we're tempted to not do it in some particular case because you cannot separate the, the, the good from the ill or whatever. So a true philosophy leads back to a deep understanding of why things are the way they are. And a half philosophy, as Hegel says, leads away from God. And uh, I think that's a valuable insight. And it probably um, makes my earlier point more elegantly regarding what we've done with the education system. Because Hinsliff and, and many others are uh, dismayed by what they see as an attack on the civilising forces um, of, of higher education, the civilising system. They see... Uh, uh, a loss. Lots and lots of kids might be faced with uh, a world where they've got a choice between something that looks more like a training in a university in STEM subjects or something that very much is a training in a college. And what they would consider to be an education um, in, the, in the humanities and the arts is not going to be available to the same extent. But there's a really, there's a really serious charge um, which I think is uh, is if not proven, I think likely to be proven by anybody that looked at it. I think there's a serious charge against the higher education system, which is that they've been training people, as I said earlier, in things that don't lend themselves to training. Uh, the, the purpose of reading uh, history isn't to actually know true things to say about history. When I went to university from a working class background in the 1980s, um, if you told them people you were studying politics, they would ask you who the Under Secretary of State was at the Foreign Office. Um, they, uh, they didn't understand what the study of politics would be. They didn't understand why you would, you would try and study why, as Aristotle would say, man is a zoon politic and a political animal. So wh what is it that makes us political? My PhD supervisor uh, wrote an article about what is it in humans that draws forth a political response? Why are we political? Why might chimpanzees not be political? And that's the kind of question that the study of politics gets at. And uh, what we might be losing with Johnson's reforms is uh, a lot of provision which really isn't apt for the folk who are undertaking it. If you go through school and you don't find philosophy and politics very interesting, or you're not particularly bookish and, and, and bright academically, and you get bad A-levels, and as Machiavelli would say, the foundations haven't been built well, and because the foundations haven't been built well, the whole structure can only be fixed later on with great expense uh, and danger to the architect. If you've went through uh, the school system and you've not done well and there's a tough job market, probably the last thing you should do is, in the short term, burn your one chance for undergraduate education by going to a marginal institution and studying a non-subject under someone who thinks that their job is to get you to understand uh, a liberal, small-l worldview that they think is unarguable. It probably doesn't do you any good and it probably doesn't do the society any good. And given that it's the wider society, including folk that skin their knuckles every day in quick safe centres uh, or uh, um, similar dreadful employments, 
people people are uh, are working hard and paying taxes, uh, and the and the idea that it's you know, uh, an obligation on their part to finance a system that neither makes better folk nor makes uh, better workers. Uh, it's not clear to me why that would be uh, an obligation of theirs. It seems to me that sociology lecturers uh, might have to consider whether they're uh, doing any good at all for the, the young folk that appear before them. If you watch some of the stuff that's available, um, open access, and uh, and you ask yourself what could be gained here, it's not clear that the, the answer is uh, very much. Uh, I was traumatised by the higher education system in the 1980s, so were most of the working class kids that uh, that went through it with me. Certainly among the, the kind of wasters maybe I hung, hung around with, but I think I think generally, I mean, the uh, the University of Glasgow was very good at failing people, um, and it, the reason why lots of people failed was precisely because they didn't move the standards, and uh, that I think I think most people who are fair-minded would say we've not only moved the standards but we've changed the standards, a bit like a driving test that no longer assesses your driving to a lower standard, but rather assesses you know your Morris dancing to a lower standard. Um, we're not actually assessing the, uh, the higher education mind anymore. Um, when I was a student, you could get a third class honours degree and still get a good job out of it because a third class honours degree was still a degree that had you know, cultivated and measured the same thing, which was the higher education mind, the analytical mind, the evaluative mind. Um, once you actually start uh, communicating a curriculum, which is just valuable and true, it's important that you know that uh, that certain things are true of gender or the family um, or economics um, or punishment. Once you start communicating a curriculum to kids who don't like reading things and thinking about them, you're probably not, not only are you doing, you're not, it's not that you're doing higher education badly, it's that you're not really doing higher education at all. And indeed, probably you're not doing education at all, never mind higher education. But anyway... If you've got a degree and you're beginning to think that it might be a bit like that, um, I hope I haven't offended you too much. Um, it's, it's always on a continuum, isn't it? Um, and nevertheless, no matter what kind of degree you've got, uh, what matters not is the past but the future. So it's always open to you to start uh, you know, really thinking things through for yourself and, uh, and doubting where doubt is appropriate, which in the humanities is uh, pretty much everywhere. Peace.